There's a challenge here, isn't there? That we don't place extra biblical burdens on other believers before we'll accept them, before we'll welcome them as one of our own. There's a challenge here to live out the gospel with complete consistency. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and today we're continuing a message called Authentic Messenger, Authentic Gospel. And uh, Jonathan, I love that you're reminding us here that it is the core of the gospel that one must believe to be welcomed into the family of God. What, what are some of the extra burdens, if you will, that you think you see Christians placing on new believers? Well, I think it's just so easy to come up with a list of rules and expectations of the kind of commitments we're going to have, the kind of you know rules we might keep in our own Christian discipleship, uh, some of the traditions maybe we have in our own church communities, and, and those can be add-ons to the gospel if we're not careful. And when someone comes with a fresh understanding of uh, salvation in Christ and they come and join our, our community, join our church, suddenly they discover that we've got a whole list of rules and expectations for them that they didn't see there in the Bible, maybe attending certain meetings or uh, reading certain books or serving in particular ways, all of which may be good in and of themselves. But if we lay those things down as if you're an authentic Christian, you're going to do this, uh, we're in danger of adding to the gospel. And and it can it, it can happen so easily. Yeah, I think uh, all of us have probably seen something like that play out. And one of the things that stuck with me years ago is when a pastor said, you know, believer, don't expect a new believer to learn in two days or two weeks or even two years what God took 20 years to teach you. Well, that's absolutely right. And of course, the danger is as we welcome new believers into our community and 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 invite them to share in our way of following Christ and our patterns of discipleship, sometimes we can put pressure on them that can be quite legalistic if we're not if we're not very, very careful about it. And as Paul is going to show us here in our passage today, we got to watch out that we're not undermining the gospel by doing things like that. Well, that passage that we're looking at today is from the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 1, looking at verses 11 through chapter 2, verse 14. So grab a Bible and join us there. Here is Jonathan. The Lord very specifically set Paul apart to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. That's his commission. That's his mission. It was a special job because, of course, the gospel had begun with the people of Israel. Jesus was an Israelite, and his, his ministry began among the people of Israel, although, of course, it expanded beyond there. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the promised king of Israel. And so for Jews to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus as Savior and King, they simply had to see and believe that all the promises of the Old Testament had been fulfilled in Him, their true Messiah. Now, when they made that step of belief, their whole way of life didn't need to change overnight. They didn't have to cast off all their traditions and their practices. Uh, many of those traditions, many of those practices, they weren't necessary anymore, but they weren't contrary to the gospel. Many of them were matters of indifference. They could keep them or not keep them, but they were kind of free to work that out over time. There was no burning urgency to do so. But for the gospel to go to non-Israelites, for the gospel to go to non-Jews, there was a whole extra layer of understanding and of work that needed to be done right away. 
It's one thing for a profound discovery to be made, for a profound truth to come to light. It is quite another thing for the full implications of that truth and that discovery to be worked out and taken to their final implications. Think, for example, of Isaac Newton's laws of motion and of universal gravitation. He uncovered and he articulated some very profound, very foundational truths. But it would take other scientists centuries to work out those truths to some wider implications, and we're still doing that even now. Newton's discovery led to air travel and even to space travel and much else in between. His discoveries contained the seeds of huge technological advances. But the scientists who designed the Apollo space vessels and the jumbo jet, they had significant work to do after Newton had laid down his pen. Articulating the principle was one thing, working out the implications is another. Now, the gospel says that Jesus died for our sins to pay the price of our wrongdoing before God through his death, to bring us cleansing, to reconcile us to our maker. It says that we're made right with God simply by believing in him. That's the core truth at the heart of everything. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It was revealed by Jesus Christ, and it was taught by all the apostles. But for that core truth to so permeate the heart and the mind of an Israelite so that they could actually believe that a Gentile could be reconciled to God, a pagan, an unclean outsider, suddenly made right with the God of Israel. Now, that takes a pretty profound shift in their thinking. For the implications of the core truth of the gospel to be worked out and to be applied rigorously and consistently, that's going to take some work. That's going to take some time. It would take a special person, actually, and it would take a special ministry. And here is where the Apostle Paul comes in. And what we learn here in Galatians tells us that the church in Jerusalem did really struggle to work through some of these issues. Just notice what happened when Paul did eventually make that second visit to Jerusalem, uh, chapter 2 and verse 3. Chapter 2 and verse 3, we're told that there was a misunderstanding there about Jewish customs. And there was pressure for a Gentile believer to submit to circumcision. Paul reports, verse 3, that not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose, says Paul, because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. You see, this is a live issue at Jerusalem. There's pressure for non-Jews to become Jews before they'll be fully accepted by God through the gospel. And the trouble even extends to the apostles, as we'll see when we come to verse 11 of chapter 2 in a moment. The gospel makes it crystal clear that we don't need to do anything in terms of religious practice or legal observance to make ourselves acceptable to the God of Israel. But for that message really to hit home, really to sink in among believers from a Jewish background at Jerusalem in the heart of Judaism, it's just going to take some time. It's going to be a messy process. And so, in His great wisdom, in His infinite wisdom, God decided to take hold of a man on the Damascus Road and so encounter him and so transform him that he will have such a clear grasp of the gospel that he'll be ready to take it and proclaim it 
to the pagans without any hindrance, without any hesitation. God, in his wisdom, decides to send Saul straight out into Gentile territory, no stop in Jerusalem. He keeps him right away from the potential complications of the situation there. When the communists came to power in China in 1949, they moved quickly to expel foreign missionaries. They were all gone by 1953. To all outward appearances for the global church, it was a complete disaster for the gospel when that happened. It was hard to understand why the Lord would allow such a circumstance, such a turn of events. Surely it would be so damaging, so undermining for that young Chinese church, for them to be just cut off from the more established uh, Christian movements in the West. Surely that separation is just going to be destructive for the Chinese church. But actually, of course, as we look back on the decades since the expulsion, we can actually see that the separation has served a profound purpose for the Chinese church. The Chinese church, separated by necessity from the Western church, has been free to develop and to flourish in its very own way. The church there has been free to learn and figure out how the gospel applies and is worked out in a Chinese context. And given the explosive growth of the church in China in recent decades, it seems as though that separation has not been the disaster we might have imagined. If Paul the transformed zealot had gone straight back to Jerusalem after his conversion and spent time there holding, sort of honing his understanding among the other apostles, the danger is that his thinking would have become clouded, that he might have actually succumbed to pressure as the apostle Peter did. But for Paul to be able just to go to the Gentiles and without hesitation tell them that they can be justified by faith alone without worrying about Jewish works of the law, without worrying about legal observances and rites and rituals, for him to proclaim that message with full conviction, he needed to have a standalone ministry. He needed to go off on his own. He needed to be separate. It's not that Paul's gospel was any different. He just had a different sphere of ministry, a different sphere in which he needed to apply the gospel and drive it home. The leaders at Jerusalem came to see, verse 7 of chapter 2, that Paul had been entrusted with a ministry to the Gentiles, just as Peter had to the Jews. And so seeing that Paul had been given this ministry by God, verse 9, uh, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me the right hand of fellowship. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews, separate spheres of ministry. Within God's wise purposes, Paul was a figure of huge significance. His life quite literally changed the world. For the majority, I guess, of us here this morning who come from Gentile backgrounds, we owe a great deal, don't we, to the ministry of Paul the Apostle. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message from the book of Galatians. It's called Authentic Messenger, Authentic Gospel. It's the second part of this message, and maybe you joined us a little late or you missed yesterday's broadcast. You can always come to our website and listen to each and every program online. Just stop by EncounterTheTruth.org, and there you can stream the program or download an MP3. I want to ask you to consider giving a gift as well. And as you do, we want to say thank you by sending you a book from Von Roberts called True Friendship. I'll have a little bit more information about that later in the broadcast, so I hope you'll stay with us. But if you have just tuned in, 
We're looking at Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 14. So grab a Bible and join us there as we continue our message, Authentic Messenger, Authentic Gospel. Here's Jonathan. An amazing transformation, a necessary separation, and finally a painful confrontation, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Confrontation is never easy. It's rarely pleasant, but sometimes it is necessary. We can think of great movements in history that have been sparked by a necessary confrontation. One of the most famous came in 1955 when you remember Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on that bus in Montgomery, Alabama to that white man who demanded it from her. A painful confrontation, a hard thing to do, but how necessary it was and what fruit has come from it. Here in verse 11, we're told about one of the more surprising events actually in early church history, an open confrontation between two of the great apostles, between Peter and Paul. What's the issue? What's sparked it? Well, Paul tells us in verse 13 that Peter used to be willing to eat with Gentiles. Peter knew that the gospel had set him free from those dietary and purity laws in Judaism, and that there was absolutely no bar to him sitting down and having a meal with a Gentile, a Gentile believer especially. In fact, doing so is more or less necessary. Sitting down for a meal is a great sign of fellowship, of togetherness, and refusing to sit down for a meal with someone is a great sign that there is, there is separation between you. There's a bar, there's a hindrance of some kind, there is a barrier. And of course, the gospel has made all believers, Jew and Gentile, all believers in Jesus, one. That's the point that Paul is going to drive home later in that famous verse, chapter 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's just a basic gospel fact, and Peter knew it well enough. But then some folk came along, folk from the circumcision group, who clearly didn't believe that the gospel broke down that barrier between Jew and Gentile. And rather than set them straight as he should have done, Peter became afraid of them. And he began to just draw back and separate himself from Gentile believers. It was pure hypocrisy, verse 13. Peter knew the gospel, and he believed that the gospel made believers one, but he decided to live out another message, to live out another belief, and he was just leading others astray as he did so. And so, seeing what was going on, Paul had no hesitation in confronting him to his face. He had no hesitation in calling Peter out. In one sense, it was a very unfortunate incident. It's sad that there needed to be a confrontation between two great church leaders, two great preachers of the gospel, two great apostles. It's sad that Peter was being a hypocrite. It must have been an uncomfortable thing for Paul to do. It is an unfortunate incident, but at the same time, we can see right here, actually on the page, how God used it for His purposes. Having had to work through that very thorny issue with Peter at Antioch, having had to figure out how serious Peter's behavior really was, having had to process it, think through it, pray through it, Paul was now crystal clear on the dynamics of the situation. And so now when faced with this crisis at Galatia and having to write this letter, 
He is able to use that experience to teach the believers at Galatia a fundamental principle about the nature and the implications of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, this story of this confrontation with Peter speaks so directly, so profoundly, uh, so relevantly into the situation at Galatia that it's hard to know where Paul in this passage stops reminiscing and starts speaking directly to the Galatians again. By the beginning of chapter 3, he's clearly addressing the Galatians again, but where the reminiscence stops and the direct address begins, it's not entirely clear. And so here again, we see the great wisdom of God, don't we, in ordaining Paul's steps and his circumstances. The confrontation with Peter would ultimately serve the ministry in Galatia. That's wonderful to see. It's an encouragement to us to see again the profound wisdom of God, the sovereignty of God in working out His purposes. But there is more for us here in this incident. There are lessons for us to take away for our own discipleship and our own discernment. There are lessons to take away because, of course, in this incident, we receive our own warning and our own reminder, don't we, to ensure that our behavior is entirely consistent with the gospel we proclaim. Are you and I willing, are we really willing to accept anyone whom Jesus has accepted through the gospel? That's a searching question, isn't it? Do we really believe that the gospel is all that's needed, 100% sufficient to make someone rights with God, to make someone part of God's family, to make someone part of our Christian family? Or do we make it clear actually by subtle things we say and by ways we behave, do we make it clear that for someone to become a full member in good standing of the Christian family, they need first to believe in Jesus, and then second, they need to fall into line with our particular expectations of behavior or service or, or family life or whatever it is we deem important in our particular Christian subculture. In order to be accepted, we subtly say and we indicate they need to become just a bit more like us. There's a challenge here, isn't there, that we don't place extra-biblical burdens on other believers before we'll accept them, before we'll welcome them as one of our own. There's a challenge here, isn't there, to be very careful not to place those extra burdens, legalistic and cultural burdens, on other believers before they're welcomed in. There's a challenge here to live out the gospel with complete consistency. There's also a lesson here about how to approach a situation where we feel that other believers, perhaps other Christian leaders even, are undermining the gospel through inconsistency, through hypocrisy. Remember that last week as we looked at the opening of the letter, we reflected a little bit on Paul's all-guns-blazing approach to those false teachers he mentions in chapter 1, calling for the outright condemnation even of anyone who would teach a false gospel, strong language there. When the gospel is on the line, Paul clearly does not believe in holding back in any way. He models for us back there in chapter 1 an urgency and a clarity. But here in this incident with Peter, the dynamic is a little bit different. The, the gospel itself is not on the line, at least not directly. Peter is not teaching and preaching a false gospel. No, Paul knows full well that Peter is a legitimate apostle of Jesus Christ. He acknowledged that back in verse 8. 
Paul doesn't suspect or charge Peter with teaching anything false. If he did, his response would, I think, be a whole lot stronger. What he sees in Peter and his companions is a little bit different. He sees, verse 14, that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Peter knows and believes the true gospel. It's the true gospel that he proclaims. But when faced with this pressure from the Judaizing element, he has held back from living out the full implications of that gospel he proclaims. In this very fundamental way, very important way, very serious way, his behavior has been just out of step with the message he proclaims. It's a serious matter. It demands confrontation, but it's not at the same level of what we see in chapter 1 where a false gospel is being actively taught. As we saw last week when we thought about that in chapter 1, there are lessons here in terms of our discernment, in terms of how we approach differences among believers, in terms of how we react when we see believers uh, living in a way that doesn't seem to line up with the gospel, when we see teachers living in such a way that undermines the gospel that's proclaimed. Where a false gospel is being taught, Paul models it for us in chapter 1, there's a line in the sand, and we need to be very, very clear. We refuse to let that kind of an issue pass, and we refuse to partner with false teachers. But where there is this matter of inconsistency, where the gospel's faithfully taught, but there's hypocrisy around it, when it's being undermined by a set of attitudes or behaviors, Paul's model here says there is a right place, even in a, a necessity, to speak into that issue, to confront it. But we aren't to just condemn or write off someone who's being hypocritical. We help them to see the truth, and we encourage them to live out the gospel consistently. In Paul, we see a life of huge significance. We see a life where God's wisdom and His grace are just evident everywhere, in shaping the circumstances so that this great mission to the Gentiles could be fulfilled and achieved. Here is a life we can give thanks for, because Paul's ministry, Paul's profound understanding of how the gospel impacts Gentiles and applies to Gentiles, his ministry has impacted us profoundly, and it's key in bringing salvation even to us today. Paul's life also has a great deal to teach us. God's grace in grabbing hold of him, in transforming him so dramatically, it gives us hope, doesn't it, that even our most hostile friends can yet be saved. God's wisdom in ordaining Paul's steps, in keeping him out there on his own for that long period of time, it reminds us that God is sovereign and wise in putting his people where he needs them for the sake of the gospel. And Paul's willingness to confront hypocrisy head on, to confront gospel inconsistency without condemning the hypocrite, without writing him off, his model challenges us. It challenges us to be consistent ourselves as we live out the gospel. And at the same time, it calls us to confront hypocrisy where we see it. A life to give thanks for, a story to learn from. What a way to wrap up our time together here and this message, Authentic Messenger, Authentic Gospel. It's part of a series called Jesus Plus Nothing. 
And if you missed any part of today's broadcast or previous broadcast in the series, you can always listen online. Just come to EncounterTheTruth.org. And we're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching each day because of your generosity. So thank you to those who are giving a gift of support and helping us keep this program on the station. If you've not given a gift before, or if you'd like to give again, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called True Friendship. It's written by Von Roberts, and it's our thank you gift to you for giving a financial gift of support and keeping Encounter the Truth on this station. You can give online by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884. You can also drop a check in the mail if that's easier. Our address is Encounter the Truth, 2176 Prince of Wales Drive, Ottawa, Ontario, K2E0A1. Thanks for listening today. I do hope you make it a point to tune in next time as we continue our series, Jesus Plus Nothing, and continue our look at the book of Galatians. Thanks also to our producer, Mark Bretta. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. I hope you'll join us again next time. <music>